Our text for today comes from Romans 1, verse 18 through 2, 16. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they uh, do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of law are, of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. This is the word of the Lord. Aren't you glad you were seated? (laughs) All right. 
Thanks, Ash. Well, that's a passage of Scripture, isn't it? Thanks be to God that we read the Scriptures together in church. Am I right? Amen. Amen. Now, when you build a house, the most important thing to get right is the foundation. Always, always the foundation. Your foundation has to be level so that everything is the same height as you build the house upward. And then everything needs to be square so the corners of the structure of the house meet at a perfect right angle. If the foundation is not both level and square, you will have all kinds of problems as you construct the house. It may not even look or feel that bad to you at first, but if you're just an inch off here or there, as the building is built, you'll get these compounding problems that that seem to happen. You see, when, when a building's foundation is off, it's even hard to do things like hang gutters so that the water drains correctly. The bathtub, which is constructed to fit into a room where the walls are square, will not fit into that corner that you had designed it to fit into. If the foundation is right, is not right, no matter how much work you put into the house, no matter how nicely you paint the walls, or how well you lay the wood floors in the kitchen, or, or the tiling in the bathroom, you won't be able to change the fact that the foundation is misshapen. And the whole house won't come out right. It won't look like the architect intended it to in the plans. Now you can do all kinds of things to the building to make it feel a little bit better, right? That gap between the bathtub and the wall, well, you, could, you can play a big bead of caulk right along that whole thing and cover it up, right? And make sure that that mistake is not visible. You can shim walls up and, fill and, and bring things back into square a little bit. You can make slight adjustments here or there. If all else fails, you can use that tied and true method of covering up a mistake. You can just get a big house plant and you can put it right in front of it and no one will see what the problem is. But the, but the foundation is still off, right? The, the, and the house, no matter how much stuff you do to it, won't be right. Now, I want you to know that this section of Scripture, this very long section of Scripture with a lot of buzzwords in it, right? All... Uh, All these buzzwords catch our ear and kind of make it difficult for us to understand what exactly Paul is saying here. But what I want you to see this morning is that Romans 1, 18 through 2, 16 is one big argument that Paul is making to the Jewish and Gentile Christians, followers of Jesus in Rome, that that the human house is out of whack, Right? Not just individual people, not just you and I, but Paul is making a big, historical, global argument here. The whole of humanity is misshapen at its core due to sin and the false worship of idols and the self. And Paul makes the argument that the human heart and mind are broken due to sin, which leads humanity down a path of what he calls anti-righteousness. In Greek, we use, he uses the language of righteousness and anti-righteousness. God, Paul points out, is righteous. He's good. He's faithful. And to go the other way and to live outside of God's intended purpose is to exemplify an unrighteousness 
that kind of eats at the core of who we, who we were created to be. Like any good doctor, before Paul can begin to explain the cure that he's going to talk about as he continues to, to teach in the book of Romans, he must be first very clear with his audience about what the sickness is, about what the problem is. And the sickness, he says, is that humanity has not lived up to its created purpose. This is the problem. Which begs the question, what is humanity's created purpose, right? Well, for Paul, a Pharisee, a Jewish uh, teacher of the law, somebody who probably had the Hebrew scriptures memorized, he would have understood humanity's purpose through the lens of reading the first few chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis, where God created both man and woman in his image. Now, people talk a lot about what it means to bear the image of God. But here is as simply as I can put it. You and I, and every other person who's ever lived on the face of the earth, was born for the purpose of bearing or carrying or displaying the goodness, love, and righteousness of God out into the world. And honestly, I can't really think of anything more profound that our lives could be geared towards. I worked for a builder for a couple of years after college and before uh, I moved up to Minneapolis for seminary. And in, those, in that time, nothing in my work felt more significant or more satisfying than when you, were, you worked on a building and then you had to, you had to slot a window into place and, it, and it, it actually fit, right? It actually fit into place. Or you had to lay the cross members for a deck and you put a level on them and they were bang on. They were perfectly level. It was this beautiful feeling of like, I can do things and it works. It's all right. I'm just going to take that clap and drink out of this beautiful Grace Community mug. That you should all buy for $15. So that we can pay for the rest of the mugs that we give away. Uh, that's the purpose, all right? Uh, that, it was this beautiful thing, right? when you actually worked for a purpose and that purpose came out. For Paul, there is a symmetry. There is a kind of beauty to the created purpose or the created order of humanity. But what he is doing in this section of Scripture is he's trying to make crystal clear that we have a problem. Humanity has a problem that's in need of solving. And that fundamental problem is that humanity has turned away from its created purpose. It's high calling and then all of the list of things that he has in first in, excuse me in Romans 1:18 through 2:16 is the result of that turning away are you tracking with me does that make sense all right i know this is a big passage of scripture so i'm going to do my best this morning so and shocker this is why i didn't do it last week at our outdoor service all right so what i want to do this morning is kind of walk through this passage of scripture with you to give you uh, a little bit of some handholds as we, as we process through it so that we have some idea of what Paul is talking about. Uh, and here's my pitch for this week. If you're a part of a home group, this is a great week to go to attend home group and have a conversation about this passage of Scripture. I am not going to be able to dissect everything um, in 
the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so. And so it's a great to be around the scriptures, an opened Bible with a group of people so you can chew on the scripture together, all right? So I would prioritize that if you have any questions about this passage that I'm not able to get to this morning, okay? Okay, thank you. One okay, we got it. So for the remainder of our time, what I want to draw out are four or three, excuse me, observations from this passage of Scripture that help us better understand what Paul is saying and hopefully make some application to our own lives. Uh, And I'm going to look at these three distinct points this morning. So here we go. Bad worship, bent character, I think it's on the screen. Wrath is the highlighter, which I think will be interesting for us. And glory is the goal. All right. So bad worship, bent character. Wrath is the highlighter, and glory is the goal. So here we go. Bad worship, bent character. What's Paul talking about here? In verse 21, he says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like human like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. There is one uh, all-encompassing truth in our lives, and that is that you will inevitably become what you worship. I don't know if this is why old people who have dogs tend to look more and more like their dogs as they get older. I don't know if that's the reason for that. But we become internally, I think, maybe externally too, the thing we worship. We become the thing we worship. Our hearts are conformed to where our worshiping behavior lies. Our character, our heart, and our mind are formed by our worship. You see, when we read about idolatry in the Bible, I think it's, we're often tempted to think, why would they have worshiped that that statue of stone, or why would they have worshipped that um, carving out of, out of wood? What was it about the wood and the stone that made them want to worship them? And I think when we, when we look back at that, we kind of miss the point. What you need to understand is that those people were not just uh, worshipping an image of something. They were worshipping the story that the idol was telling. Does this make sense? A, a story about Uh, prosperity or a story about getting the proper weather conditions so that your crops would grow. In the case of, say, something like a fertility god in the ancient world, it was a story about being able to have more children so that your clan or your tribe could grow and flourish. Does this make sense? For, For the ancient person, when they worshiped an idol, they were doing more than just bowing down to a a piece of stone. They were, their hearts were being guided towards a kind of story, and they were worshiping that story. Uh, you see, our worship, in the same way as with ancient people, is often tied to the stories we believe, the stories that we want to be true for us. And I will tell you that in our current culture, In our current cultural moment, there is one story that has been the consistent drumbeat of culture since I was a kid, probably a little bit before. And you may not be able to name it, but I think it'll be familiar to you. And that uh, cultural story, the, the, the Christian philosopher Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity. 
the age of authenticity. In our culture, we worship the authentic self, the individual self. Think of, and here's how we'll illustrate this, think of every single Disney princess movie that's ever existed, from Frozen to Moana. These characters need to break out from the constraints of their family and their need to... uh, uh, and, the, and the kind of requirements that are placed on them, and they need to go out on this kind of epic journey of discovery. And what do they find on that epic, epic journey of, the, of discovery? Their true self. I could sing Let It Go For You now. To make this point, or to really drive it home. But I'm not going to. But I'm not going to. You see, right, the way that this story, this, this narrative of the authentic self is the story of our cultural moment. And here's the thing. Who is the center of that story? You can answer me if you want. Me, right? I am the center of the story. I, that story gets no more profound than my life, doesn't it? Which I don't know about you, but sometimes when I look at my life, I go, is that all we got here? Is this this as good as it's going to get? And here's what I want to say this morning. You were created to live into a story that's bigger than you. Right? A story that's bigger than you. And your, your life begins and ends with you. It could be an okay story some days. But in, but in the long run, it's... It's not as good of a story, is it? In fact, if your story is only about you, you will constantly be looking inward, and everything is about me, me, me. And Paul tells us that that inward turn, that like nasal-gazing authentic self-vision of the world, actually leads to a kind of idolatry of the self that leads to the warping of our minds and our hearts. This is what Paul says in this passage. Have you ever truly known an emotionally free and loving person who was constantly obsessed with themselves? Have you ever known anybody who's like, their only concern is them and yet they were free and loving? And and no, right? There's There's this warping. There's this bending of the image of God in us when our God is ourselves. And in our culture, there is no higher God than the self, is there? You have to go out and you have to discover your truth, which is really difficult to do, right? You have to kind of cast off restraint and you have to figure out who you are. And that, that belies the point, and it misses the point, I think, that the biblical authors make, that you outside of your interconnected relationships with other people and outside of your relationship with God aren't anything, right? We are a connected whole. We are a unified people. We sang it this morning, make us one as you are one. To, ide- to identify our identity is, is to find who we are within the context of God's plan and his people. This is not to say that we can't have we can't live authentically within that construct because we can, right? This is not to say that there isn't such a thing as figuring out some things about ourselves because that's good and important. But there is this worship of self that leads to a kind of inward-focused idolatry that leads us to a kind of warped picture of who God created us to be. 
Here's how Richard Hayes sums up this part of this passage of Scripture. He says, Humanity's unrighteousness consists in its fundament, fundamentally in its refusal to honor God and render Him thanks. God has clearly shown forth His power and divine nature in and through the created world. But the human race in general has disregarded this evidence and turned on a massive scale idolatry. And Paul makes clear here that the in this uh, argument, that, there, that it is this kind of idolatry that is blinding, that is distorting, that affects both our image of God and the way in which we conduct ourselves in the world. You see, if you have the wrong focus of your story, if you worship something that you were never created to worship, the natural consequences of that behavior is a kind of distortion, a distortion of our created self, a um, the foundation, right, of our lives will be not what it should be, which leads us to the second idea this morning. Uh, and that second idea is wrath is the highlighter of our brokenness. Wrath is the highlighter of our brokenness. Now, of all the buzzy words in this section of Scripture, wrath might just be the buzziest, right? The worship of self is ultimately results in a kind of self destruction or a self-dissatisfaction. And our human refusal to acknowledge God as creator ends up blinding us to the truth and distorting the ultimate plans God has laid out before us. We, it's, this, it's this kind of religious version of self-sabotage. And so the sins that Paul lists here are not, and I, you really need to understand this in order to understand the argument that Paul is making. These are not warnings that if you do these things, these things, you will endure God's wrath or his active punishment of, of you. Paul is making the argument that all of these things, this list of sins that he gives, are evidence that God's wrath is already at work. So, he, so three different times he says, uh, he uses the language of God gave them over. God gave them over, or he handed them over to their own work. God's wrath is, in this passage, is not active in the sense of he is imposing punishment upon people. God's wrath is his allowing humanity to bear the natural consequences of our actions. And I think it is really important to get this deep down in our hearts. Yes, God is angry about sin and injustice, and that's a good thing, right? You don't want a God who turns a kind of aloof eye to child abuse, right? We don't want to worship a God who looks away from the brokenness of our world and just goes, well, that is what it is, right? We want a God who is angry. He is angry at sin because of its destructive effect it has on his children, whom he loves. In the same way that a father or mother is ang angry at a drug addiction that plagues the life of their children, so God is angry, but God's anger is not displayed in his active destruction of his children. Rather, it is displayed in his willingness to give them over to the behavior that they have so readily said they want to carry out. Here's how N.T. Wright puts it. He says this, when God gives human beings responsibility, he means it. The choices we make not only individually, but as a species, are choices whose consequences God, alarmingly, allows us to explore. He will warn us. He will give us opportunities to repent. Uh, 
But if we choose idolatry, we must expect our humanness bit by bit to dissolve. And our own actions and our own false loves lead us to this kind of, what I, I would call a kind of malformation of our character. Paul is saying here that there, is a, that there is this corrosive effect that happens on the purposes that God has laid out for us to be his image bearers in the world. And when we worship wrongly and when we desire our own way above God's way, God will give us over to that. He will say, in the same way that we're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, not my will but yours be done, God will say, your will be done to us. And, we will, and, and humanity will bear the natural consequences of that behavior. And here, spe- specifically, Paul lists here the malformation of our sexual desires. And, he, and I think he uses this example very, very clearly to point back to Genesis 1, right? It, in Genesis 1, it says God created them both male and female. And in, in his created order, there's this beautiful symmetry that, that, that God points out. And yet, he, Paul says that the very base level of who we were created to be, when we, when we look to other gods or, or when we worship wrongly, we are, we are, there's a malformation of our human sexual desire even down to that basis level. I think this is the point he is making here. Paul's saying that humanity has been broken all the way down. And God is not a God through sheer force of will will make us worship him. He simply will not. He is a God who, who will give us over to the natural consequences of our actions. He gave us responsibility, and he meant it. And in verse 29, he gives this incredibly detailed list of sins. For Paul, the situation is quite bad. And even if you don't see yourself in, the, in some of the sins, by the time you get down to verse 29, there's no way that you can avoid that there's something that you struggle with that's here, right? In verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. Okay, maybe I got through that part, that part safe. Uh Uh-oh, here we go again. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They they invent ways of doing evil. And here's here's the kicker, right? They disobey their parents, right? They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteousness, the righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They do not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. So, that is the bad news, right? That's the state we're in. But Nick, what's the good news, (laughs) right? Because there's got to be some good news. This passage doesn't seem to have any good news attached to it this morning, does it? Well, the good news is, I think, something that Paul gets to near the end of this passage. And the good news is that the goal of all of this, God's goal and his purpose, the end of the story that God is telling, the goal is glory. The goal is glory. So here's what he says beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed 
God will repay each person according to what he has done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, this is a passage that can be slightly misleading because it seems in this passage that Paul is saying, you get what you do, right? That if you do good, then good will come back at you. If you do bad, then bad will come back at you. And this, is, this contradicts some of what we understand the gospel to be, right? Because we understand the gospel to be is you do bad, God does good, you receive Jesus, you get his good, right? This is the gospel. But yet what Paul is talking about here is something slightly different. Later in this story, Paul will make it quite clear that you cannot earn glory and that Jesus has, by his grace, lived as the first, the first truly human life, right? Jesus lived perfectly as the, fir- as the one and only person who lived out the purpose and the story that God had for him and that through faith in him, we can be gifted his life and his glory and his goodness. But what Paul is saying here is that the end goal, the purpose for you and for me, is glory and immortality. And what he says here is that uh, there, is this, there is this reality that to be wedded to, to God through Christ, to, to come to faith in Jesus and to realign our heart and to properly align our worship in the way that it w- we were created to align our worship, does lead to a kind of successive process in our lives where we can grow in glory. We can grow in glory. You see, you were created to be a receptacle of God's glory. This is why the, in the New Testament, individual followers of Jesus are referred to as temples of the Holy Spirit. You can house the presence of God and his love. And if Paul is being harsh with this by outlining the problem here, it is because he has in view the majesty and power and purpose we are, we're all created for. You see, the human house is out of whack. The foundation of humanity built on idolatry and the worship of self has led to a kind of predicament, right? We can all just look around the world and see what that has wrought for us. But thanks be to God and Christ, the house can be put right through Jesus. The original plans that the architect had from the beginning can be redressed. And your life, when properly pointed at its true source of worship, can begin to be filled more and more with the light of God's glory and peace, Paul says. The promise of the gospel, then, is that Jesus puts us in touch with our truest selves. You see, it's not through the, 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 the story of authenticity that we are put in touch with our truest selves, but rather through this story of the gospel and through our right relationship to Jesus, we're put, in trust, we're put in touch with our truest selves. Not the selves we think are ourselves, or the, or the selves that we self-create, but the selves that God created us to be. You were created for a glorious purpose, 
And through faith in Jesus Christ, that purpose can take up residence inside of you. Paul wants us to be crystal clear about the fact that the world in which we live is a broken place. I don't know about you, but the world feels broken to me in more ways as I get older than I was ever aware of when I was a young person. I see more things and I experience more things and I get to know the brokenness in my own heart in ways that I was never even aware of when I was a young person. I become more aware of the brokenness in, in the church, in America. I've been listening to this podcast series called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I don't know if any of you have listened to it. If you want to, I think it's actually a really good podcast. But after each one of these podcasts, it's the story of a church that was like 15,000 people and then collapsed because of bad leadership. And after each one of these, I just have to like call my counselor and say, can we talk? I just listened to another podcast. Uh, it's discouraging to me. It's discouraging to me. But the truth of the matter is, we were created to house the glory of God. And when we are distracted, when we are um, seduced even by all of the sins and the, mis and the malformations of our world, we have missed the purpose of our lives. We have missed the significance of our lives to be, to be receptacles, to be houses for the glory of God to walk out our purpose and our story in beauty and significance. When we miss the reality of who, we're, who we were actually created to be, we exchange the glory of God for human things. We exchange the glory and goodness and beauty of God for like little idols whittled out of stone and wood. And that's not what God would have us to do. Olivia, if you could come up, it would be awesome. Now, this morning, I was kind of struggling to figure out, like, what's the takeaway here for our people, right? This is a long passage of Scripture, and it feels dense, and it feels heavy, and there's all kinds of buzzwords in it. And, and, we're, and, and how, do we, how do we take this passage and run with it? And here's the truth. You and I both know the ways in which we are seduced by the world. We all know, I think, that we have been, we have, uh, we are always confronted with stories in our world that ask us to worship them. I don't know what it is for you. It's a different, uh, for many people, there, there are different stories. There are different idols out there. There are different temptations. I've seen people who, uh, who being a parent becomes a kind of idol to them, right? I've seen people who their marriage can become an idol. I've seen people who obviously things like money and sex and power can become idols. But so, but so often, I think that the idols that we struggle with are just, I don't know, subtler than that. They're about how we're perceived. They're about maybe some past hurt that we've experienced that we can't quite let go of. And we define our story in light of, those, of, of that thing. It becomes, it's just the idol of self. It's just the idol that like, I'm right and I have the answers and I know what the next step is. And then we take that step and we fall on our face, right? <laughs> I don't know what that idol is for you this morning. But Jesus wants you to walk away from those idols, those stories that we, we kind of implicitly worship 
and to begin to put our more of our faith and our trust in him. And obviously the first step in that process is the step of repentance. It's to turn away from our sins and to turn towards Jesus in faith as the author and the perfecter of our faith, as the one who gives us the forgiveness of sins, as the one who gives us salvation. That's the first step. But I'm convinced, and Paul was writing this passage of scripture to the church. He was writing it to Christians, right? He was writing it to people who had professed faith in Jesus, who followed Jesus with their lives. And yet he wants to tell them, like, this is the world you live in, and it is a temptation for you. But the glory of God is still available in so many ways. And this morning, I just want us in an attitude of prayer, if you'd stand with me, Maybe we could identify in our own hearts what that idol is for us. Maybe it's the idol of comfort, right? The idol of, I just want to be comfortable. I don't want anybody to step on my toes. Maybe, maybe it's the idol of work where you have identified your vocation as the core of your being and you just drive at it and drive at it and drive at it and drive at it. Maybe it's the drive for approval or achievement like we talked about last week. I don't know what that is. But I think God wants to continually in our lives unseat those things so that we can learn to depend more on Jesus and so that we can step more fully into the story that he is telling that the story is not all about us, but it's about him. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we love you. And we thank you, Jesus, that you brought us here. And we thank you for the, the scriptures, even the hard scriptures, even the ones that have uh, firm language and feel to be a kind of warning to us, God. We're so thankful that you love us enough to warn us of the fact that we, uh, we are tempted to go down the wrong road. We're so thankful that you are a God who will uh, continually knock on our door, regardless of how many times we kind of want to silence that knock. That you're always working to get through to us. And so this morning, God, would you help us to take the, Paul's warning seriously, his diagnosis seriously? Would you help us to see and understand, God, that we are a part of the human race? a race that has gone astray, a race that has sinned, a race that has falsely worshipped, created things. And would you help us to turn our focus and our attention to the Creator God, who gives our life meaning and purpose and direction and focus and significance. Jesus, would you help to unseat those idols from our lives, whatever they are, right now in the name of Jesus. Would we just in an attitude of prayer. Give those up to you, Jesus. We give you our idols this morning. We give you our idols this morning. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would lead us to a more full-throated, wholehearted worship of you. And in the worshiping of Jesus, would we find our truest lives our truest selves. And we pray it all now in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. And amen. Can I just tell you one thing before you get away? So we are what we worship. This is the natural kind of process of the human heart. But there's one other thing too. 
We are what we worship, but what we worship is what we are. I know I said that just the other way around, but this is important. Worship has a formative effect in our lives, right? If you come to church once a week or once a month or once a quarter, I don't know what your pattern is. And the rest of your week is just kind of devoid of anything having to do with Jesus. If, if you don't see your life as cohering within the story of the scriptures and the, and the redemptive narrative of God's life, then the work of worship won't have its work in you. And the hooks of culture will just naturally pull you in that direction, right? But if you every day stay vitally connected to that source, if you give yourself both to prayer and to the reading of scripture and to uh, community with other followers of Jesus, and I don't mean like for three hours every day. I know none of us have time for that. But if, as we stay vitally connected to the source that is Jesus through the Holy Spirit, we, we will see our hearts begin to navigate in the direction of Jesus, even if they were pointed in the direction of other things. You know, one of the things I pray a lot of mornings is, Lord, let the meditations of my heart and the, and the words of my lips be pleasing to you, O God. And that's a prayer that I, that I pray before I actually start praying, but it's also a prayer for the whole of my day, <laughs> right? That, that I would live into the story that God is telling and not all of the other stories that are just coming to me ad nauseum through the TV or through the radio. I don't listen to the radio, but through all of the different ways that stories come to us. What you worship, you become. And so this week, I would encourage you, worship Jesus, right? Worship Jesus and become more like him. All right? All right. Would you go today? in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to pick up a mug, they're out there. Uh, you, can, you can pay online or you can uh, throw uh, payment in that uh, envelope that's there. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for being here.